Since we are pressed for time, and um, I uh, want to ensure that all of our speakers are given uh, the 20 minutes that we've promised them, since they have a lot of interesting things to say, uh, I will begin the second panel as people stream in. Welcome. Welcome to you all. Communism created shortages practically everywhere, but there was never any shortage of jokes about communism. Uh, one of Ronald Reagan's uh, favorite jokes was about a man who goes to buy a car in Moscow, pays for it, and is told by a salesman that he can collect it in 10 years' time. The buyer thinks for a moment and asks, morning or afternoon? The salesman, astonished by the question, asks, what difference does it make? To which the buyer replies, well, the plumber is coming in the morning. <laughs> of course, those of us uh, who were growing up behind the Iron Curtain, I myself uh, grew up in communist Czechoslovakia, for us, communism was no laughing matter. In addition to horrific human rights abuses mentioned by uh, Paul Hollander, communism was a massive economic failure. It failed to deliver both in terms of prosperity and in terms of equality. Neither widespread employment of slave labor nor harsh punishment could make communist countries grow at a faster pace than the West. With each passing year, the income gap between capitalist and communist countries grew. Top communist party members, of course, and their families seldom experienced poverty because they, contrary to their egalitarian principles or egalitarian principles of communism, had access to special hospitals, schools, and shops. Much has changed over the past 20 years. The formerly captive people of Europe and former Soviet empire are now politically free, or at least most of them. They're also economically freer. Georgia and Estonia, for example, now rank at the very top of the Fraser Institute's economic freedom of the world, in, uh, economic index of economic freedom. And uh, people of uh, the former captive nations can now boast higher incomes than ever, longer lifespans, higher school enrollment, and also better quality of the environment. To discuss the process of uh, transition from communism to capitalism, its accomplishments as well as its disappointments, I would like to welcome our first panelist, who is Andres Aslund. He is a senior fellow uh, at the Peterson Institute of International Economics and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. He's a leading specialist on post-communist economic transformation with more than 30 years' experience in, uh, the economic uh, in the field. Dr. Aslund has worked uh, as an economic advisor to Russian, Ukrainian, and Kyrgyz governments. He's the author of nine books, most recently, How Ukraine Became a Market Economy and Democracy. <laughs> For sale in all the best bookshops, I assume. He has also edited 14 books. Previously, he was the director of the Russian and Eurasian program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was the founding director of the Stockholm Institute of Transition Economics, economics and professor at the Sh Stockholm School of Economics. Dr. Aslund served as a Swedish diplomat 
in Moscow, Geneva, and Kuwait. He earned his doctorate from the Oxford University. Please let me, uh, help me welcome Anders Asselund. Thank you very much, uh, Marianne, and uh, it's uh, nice to be here at the Cato Institute again, and I think it's excellent that uh, you're organizing a conference uh, uh, to celebrate this very happy and uh, important event, the collapse of uh, communists 20 years uh, ago. I will present you with uh, pretty simple messages, because I think that what we have seen is very clear. Sometimes it's good with nuances, sometimes it's dangerous with nuances. So I will give you three theses that I will elaborate uh, upon. We know how to build capitalism, and it works. Second thesis is uh, institutions are good, but they are not enough. You also need good policy, and you need strong uh, leaders to get right. And then finally, a little bit about the current financial crisis. It doesn't mean that anything went wrong. This is just an overheating, primarily caused by fixed exchange rate. So it doesn't change anything of our overall message. Just one picture, suitably gray and corny, so that you see what, how bad it was, as Marianne mentioned. This is Moscow in the fall of 91. Nothing in the shop, but uh, lots of people there chasing the commodities uh, that were no longer there. This was an economic system that couldn't go any longer. And what has happened now? The evidence that we know how to build a market economy is that no less than 27 of 30 post-communist countries have become uh, market economies. As Andrei Larionov elaborated on here before, we are not that good on building democracies. That's what we need to learn. But you really need a nasty dictator in order to block the building of, uh, of capitalism. There are a few of them left. I don't need to name them, but it's all too evident. So what is the cure? It's simple. It's radical, comprehensive reforms. You may call it the Big Bang, or you may call it shock therapy. But the three elements are quick regulation of prices and trade, defeat inflation, and then fast, extensive privatization. It is often said that the devil is in the details, it's true. Therefore, you should avoid the details. You shouldn't get lost in them. You should concentrate on the principles instead. All these people who talk about the devil lies in the details. These are the ones who don't want to undertake major reform. And speed was vital. You have to act fast before the old establishment has uh, recuperated. And uh, this is my favorite quote in this regard by Martlar, the great uh, Estonian reformer and uh, uh, twice prime minister of Estonia, to wait means to fail. And let me then quickly go through a few graphs with you 
to, sh uh, to show you how clear the uh, picture actually is. I have th there are three groups of countries. The first is Central and Eastern Europe, the three Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, uh, and Estonia, uh, Lithuania. Uh, the stars uh, in my book together with uh, uh, Poland and uh, the Czech Republic. We also have Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, and Romania. The red line in the middle, it's the nine CIS reformers. The countries in the former Soviet Union had actually become market economies. And then the third uh, uh, yellow line is uh, uh, post-Soviet non-reformers. The three notorious uh, dictators of Belarus, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan that have managed to stop uh, their countries. And what this uh, picture shows, it is that uh, uh, the countries that undertook the the early reforms, the first line, do I have a pointer? No. Uh, the uh, early reforms, they have been ahead all the time in uh, terms of, uh, here we are. So you should be over this line in order to be a full market economy. For the post-Soviet reformers, it took until 98, until they as a group uh, reached that, and they have struggled ever since, getting ahead a bit further, while the <laughs> early reformers got ahead better. And the non-reformers, they have just got stuck at a non-market uh, level and uh, not uh, developed more. And just to show you how uh, bad the situation was, in '93, the average inflation in the former Soviet Union was 4,400%. What you get then is economic chaos. We might argue whether uh, inflation should be below 30% or 10% to get reasonable growth. It has to be down in the low double digits before you get, uh, uh, get growth uh, at all. And uh, the third thing you need to accomplish is privatization. The purple line here is the Central and East European countries again. And you can see in those countries now, more than 75% of GDP for many years come from the private sector, approximately as much as in uh, Western Europe. They have arrived and they stay there. Quite heroically, the post-Soviet reformers are actually increasing their private sector all the time. The one big exception here is Russia, because there the public sector is increasing. In all the others, uh, the private sector is gradually moving on. While the three countries that got stuck, Belarus, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, they haven't got ahead. They are uh, still stuck, because they really never started uh, reform. So the perhaps most... Uh, controversial question in transition has been, how should you privatize? Everybody agrees that you should privatize, but how should you be done? After having seen lots of discussions and literature on the topic, I have arrived at one simple conclusion. This is a political question. Privatize as is politically uh, possible, because it's vital for so many things. A predominance of uh, the private sector, 
is, of course, a precondition for a normal market economy, as Ludwig von Mises clarified in 1919. It's also a precondition for democracy. Uh, and uh, uh, it limits uh, 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 corruption. So this uh, is something that you absolutely need to, uh, to get uh, uh, done. And it varies from country to country. Privatize as you can, rather than saying that one model is uh, more important than the other, because politics varies between countries more than uh, eco economics uh, uh, it does. So let me then look upon the requirements for success. The first, which uh, we economists tend to ignore, that is that a democratic breakthrough is vital to beat the old communist uh, uh, elite. And then we come in the second phase, uh, the economic policy making. You need to formulate, adopt, and in implement a radical market reform program as fast as possible, what I've just talked about. But what is vital and tends to be forgotten is what Mikhail Gorbachev used to call the human factor, which is critical. You need a strong reform leader, otherwise you don't accomplish anything. And a day like this, I think that we should remember the true heroes of uh, uh, transition, I've here put up uh, five names, which I think are the greatest heroes of uh, uh, post-communist economic uh, transition. And uh, my favorite is Leszek Balcerowicz. Václav Klaus might be upset that I put him only on the second place, <laughs> given that he has been the most successful politician, but he belongs up there. Yegor Gaidar, who perhaps worked uh, under the most uh, difficult political uh, conditions, Mart Lahr, arguably the most perfect of the reformers, but he worked under very easy conditions, you may say, in small Estonia. And uh, Einar Srepsha, the current uh, Minister of Finance of Latvia, who was uh, head of the Central Bank of Latvia uh, for a decade, and pretty lonely uh, pursued uh, this uh, campaign. Without these people, it wouldn't have happened. It's good to have theory, it's good to have institutions, but you also need to have strong leadership in a crisis. So dynamic market economic reforms have worked. We have now a critical mass of market reforms and privatization and conservative macro policy. And what happened? We got 8% GDP growth throughout the region from 2000 to 2008. This is a stellar result. And... Uh, if anybody asks you if uh, the post-communist transformation worked, this is, uh, frankly, enough. It was done, and it worked. This is uh, what it looks like. It's, um, uh, the Baltics here as a green line, the true uh, stars in my uh, story, while Central and South uh, Eastern Europe was uh, slightly slower in the early uh, 2000s. <clears throat> and... Uh, we can also see that uh, uh, GDP uh, per capita uh, has uh, caught up uh, and is now higher than it was at the collapse of uh, uh, communism in all these, uh, uh, these countries. So 
let me elaborate a little bit on democracy. Uh, my argument is that it is very, very important for economic reform because it's the best uh, weapon against uh, rent-seeking, which was uh, the real scourge of uh, <clears throat> the transition uh, period. And as I'll show, democracy and market reform were positively correlated. It's not true that you need a benign dictator to undertake market reform. The opposite is true, because benign dictators tend uh, more often or not uh, that, that is almost always to be in favor of their good friends rather than uh, the benefit of uh, uh, the nation. Democracy and privatization go together. The more private enterprises you have, the more base for also political pluralism. And democracy reduces corruption because it exposes um, uh, bad habits. And just to give you... Uh, this is what it looks, democracy and market reform, a strong positive correlation. Democracy and privatization, an equally strong positive correlation. And also more privatization means uh, 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 less uh, uh, corruption. So the evidence is just about as clear as it uh, uh, could be. Uh, so what about the current uh, East European financial uh, crisis. What was it about? Frankly, I think that it's pretty easy. It has been an overheating. Uh, two large current account deficits for many countries uh, uh, during several years, which has led to uh, excessive uh, private foreign debts, exceeding uh, GDP in uh, a few countries, notably Estonia and Latvia. And it has also led to uh, high inflation, double-digit inflation in several uh, countries. And what happens when you end up in this situation of overheating? Sooner or later you come to what economists call a sudden stop. Nobody wants to give you money any longer. You get frozen out of the international uh, financial markets, and that in turn leads to huge falls in GDP. And after that, uh, uh, a budget de deficit arises because the GDP has fallen. So the main cause of this was real exchange rate policy. Uh, the countries that have been hit the worst are the three Baltic uh, countries, the stars in form of uh, systemic transition, and uh, Ukraine. And all of these had fixed exchange rates. So it's really an exchange rate story and the current account deficit uh, issue rather than a systemic issue. And all these uh, countries, apart from Hungary, had good public uh, finances before, uh, before the, uh, the crisis. And uh, what can we say about this European financial crisis? This looks like a complete repetition of the East Asian crisis, 97-98. And we have now seen that these countries turned around after a year or so of horrendous crisis, and it turned out that they were in much better shape than anybody uh, had uh, expected. Adequate IMF programs have been adopted with substantial financing. The IMF has learned the mistake from 1997-98 uh, when they posed too many structural demands and offered too little money. When you have good governments like these, you just pour money on them. They will pay back. And uh, I think that this is likely to end as suddenly as it started with a strong uh, recovery. 
So my bottom line is capitalism prevails. Interestingly, we can see no left-wing tendencies at all. And we have seen amazingly few social protests. It was interesting, Professor Hollander discussed Hungary. Hungary has been the most socialist country, the country with the biggest public deficit, the country with biggest public expenditures. And surprise, surprise, we have nearly stagnation for many years. Then you get all the social morass. And the people are going to lose the next elections of the socialists who actually uh, were re-elected uh, last time around. So uh, if anything, we are seeing a rout of the socialists in the post-communist realm in connection with um, uh, the current financial uh, crisis. And the star in this situation is Poland, where we in the last European election saw that it was the centre-right with the right that were competing, and the socialists are simply eradicated from Poland uh, today through the democratic electoral uh, process. Poland has had no GDP decline at all any quarter, and I would say that there is one reason for this, an excellent central bank policy. Poland has not had a fixed exchange rate, but a floating exchange rate uh, because of inflation targeting. It has had uh, a persistently low uh, inflation because of uh, positive real interest rates, as you, of course, should have in all normal uh, situations in normal countries. And uh, the National Bank checked credit expansion and checked uh, uh, the house prices so that they wouldn't go uh, run away. And uh, also the National Bank regulated away mortgages in euro uh, in order to avoid uh, unnecessary current uh, exposure. And why did this happen? Because uh, one of my great heroes, Leszek Balcerowicz, ran the National Bank of Poland uh, for several years before the, the crisis. And my point here is that Good institutions work only with uh, good leadership. And, of course, needless to say, standing here in Washington, one arrives at the question, uh, what uh, would there really have been a financial crisis in the United States and the world if Leszek Balcerowicz had been chairman of the Federal Reserve? I doubt it. And I may add that Leszek Balcerowicz for many years was the most hated man in Poland, according to opinion polls, while Alan Greenspan, of course, has been one of the most popular men uh, in the United States for many years. You don't want a popular chairman of a central bank. You want an independent chairman of a central bank who thinks of a nation rather than of his personal uh, popularity. And... The point, of course, is that no institution works with uh, weak uh, leadership. So the idea that we can have ideal uh, institutions without strong leaders is unfortunately impossible. And let me just give my three bottom line conclusions. Capitalism has been successfully built. It is likely to last because it's not a question in any of these countries. The current East European crisis looks uh, like a temporary blip, like the East Asian uh, crisis of 97-98. These countries will come back 
with vigor and it will by no means discredit what has been accomplished during the transition. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anders, for being perfectly on time. Um, listening to you, I just realized you may be the only non-socialist Swede I know. There are many. You, have no, you are Norberg, for example, <laughs> being a fellow here. Exactly. I, um, but uh, in addition to recognizing your presence, I, I also want to say a few things um, about our other guests. Uh, Oleg, of course, uh, has come down uh, to Cato from, uh, from Canada. And from further afield, uh, Andre has flown over from uh, Slovenia to be with us uh, just uh, for this conference, and we'll be going there shortly. And Kaka um, Bendukidze, uh, who is our new speaker, uh, who is our next speaker, um, came all the way from Georgia. So I want to take just a moment to thank them uh, very much for uh, for for doing that uh, for Liberty and for um, uh, for the Cato Institute. Kaka uh, is the founder and the chairman of the Free University in Tbilisi, uh, which is the leading private university in, in Georgia. He served as Minister of Economic Development, State Minister on Reforms, Coordination, and the head of the State Chancellery of Georgia between 2004 and 2009. Under his leadership, Georgia became the top reforming country in the world, according to the World Bank's Doing, uh, Doing Business report. In particular, Georgia jumped from 137th place to 18th place on the ease of doing business index ahead of Germany and France. Before turning to his native Georgia, returning to his uh, native Georgia, Bendukidze uh, was actively involved in the reshaping of the Russian industry, uh, engineering industry especially, uh, in the 1990s. Uh, he um, uh, was uh, the CEO of the largest uh, engineering company in Russia called the OMZ, uh, which um, uh, he presided over from its founding in 1996 until 2004. Please help me welcome Kaja Bendukidze. Someone's watch here. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Welcome. So, um, uh, some of my friends uh, here, like uh, they, they touch the issues which uh, would like to discuss with you, uh, how to build a normal country. Um, I think that uh, uh, I agree with uh, Anders that. Uh, uh, Capitalism is built, but I am not sure that I can call that country, including my own country, a normal country. A normal country in the sense how we can dream about them and how we can think here in the United States, which is one of the most normal countries in the world, uh, in my understanding. Um, and that's uh, the uh, uh, some, some very wide chart which shows... Uh, uh, the democracy, as it measures in the freedom house, uh, and uh, economic freedom of a world-based uh, uh, freedom on the left side. And, uh, and this is Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union, and we can, uh, it's clearly, clear, you can see clearly that Eastern European countries are 
on the left part of the chart and CIS countries or former Soviet countries except except Baltic they are on the on the right right part of the chart. So we can focus on the on these countries uh, and uh, uh, which are the CIS countries except Georgia which withdraw himself from CIS. And we can look uh, what was happening, but, but it's not so interesting because I think there was happening different, different things. And the Washington consensus was applied to all of these countries, what Washington consensus type policies, let's say. Um, if you look to Washington consensus, there is a lot of requirements of that, but most of them are, let's say, fiscal, the first half, uh, trade liberalization, uh, deregulation, and... Uh, uh, some of them are quite leftish directional public spendings from subsidies to pro poor services and something like that. Uh, so, and if you look, uh, actually it works everywhere. Here is the uh, country split it on more democracy, less democracy, less regulation, more regulation. And um, if you can look at uh, the average inflation was more or less okay, except uh, less democracy, more regulated countries. Uh, the uh, the same. The uh, the there is very little difference in uh, the gross enrollment rate. Uh, there is uh, difference, but not huge in corruption perception rank. Uh, there is significant more or less difference in foreign direct investment uh, flow. Uh, there is uh, more 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 significant. In my understanding, a long-term uh, institutional uh, problem of uh, a low level of uh, private sector as share in GDP in Russia, uh, in Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Belarus. And in Russia, it's higher, but it's declining, as Oslo says. And um, so what was the, the, uh, the, uh, the idea of Washington Consensus? The idea was to stabilize, privatize, and liberalize. And it's great, it's great, that's great ideas, but it has different results in Estonia and in Kyrgyzstan. Yeah? Why? Uh, the answer, which the common answer, and I think that that's the right answer, is that there is a difference in social capital or institutional memory or whatever. There is a lot of words explaining that. Uh, but the sen sense is that uh, the, the uh, lack of functioning institutions, because uh, you, you can have central bank. Uh, for example, the central bank of, Tur of uh, Tajikistan. I mean, quite recently, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, there was a, uh, I, one of the uh, big four auditing uh, reports about central bank of Tajikistan, and they found that the, the governor of central bank was permanently issuing multi-million-dollar credits to his own company. Yeah, for example, you can have. Uh, it's not central bank. It's an institution which is named central bank, but factually, it's not not the central bank. It's some some pot of money. You can use that word or something like that. And we are not talking. We are not talking about um few 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 millions of dollars. We are talking about many hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so uh, lack of institutions, de jure lack of institutions, not de facto lack of institutions. That's the problem. Uh, and uh, what is the uh, how how it can be treated? 
And uh, I agree with Andrei Ilarionov that uh, there, there should be the special treatment. This, but from, from which source that special treatment can come? And there is different, different, different uh, ways how to do that. And my, my, I want to talk uh, uh, about uh, the treatment which is coming from uh, economic reform, or in the wide sense of economic reform. So, because uh, I, I, I read, uh, making my uh, presentation for this meeting, I read different economists um, criticizing Washington Consensus. I can also criticize Washington Consensus because it was very moderate, but they were criticizing Washington Consensus because it was extremely liberal. Um, it's very strange. And these people are professors on leading American universities, which is more strange uh, at the beginning. And some of them say that they are not socialists, which I don't understand what that means, because they are socialists. <laughs> Maybe they are not member of Socialist Party of the United States of America, but there is no Socialist Party. From that point of view, there are no Socialists in the United States, but there is a lot of them. So, and, uh, the claim was that uh, there were different claims. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's very funny to read uh, those criticisms, because uh, it looks like that... Uh, how, 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 uh, that they say, okay, you should develop, you must develop better institutions. Of course. Of course I must. But how? Tell me how to develop that institutions. I can tell you, you must be slim and uh, hairy and uh, good looking, of course. But how to do that? That's the issue. Not to do or not to do. How to do. Yeah? What, more, more, and and uh, what should be the responsible policy to build institutions? More interventions, as someone says, more protectionism, less openness, new left turn, despite are you a member of Socialist Party or not. Read this uh, World Bank report about how countries can grow. And uh, that's that uh, the countries which grow, no, none of these countries were fully liberalized, of course, because there is no none uh, no single fully liberalized country in the world. So how can found the good example? Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I think that the answer is uh, answer is in uh, continuing reforms. The 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 the, the one of the big mistake is that uh, the understanding that uh, maybe we can have a ruler who can who can uh, build institutions from the top. Um, uh, but none of the institutions in Western society was built from the top. Uh, when uh, the, when, uh, when uh, English uh, uh, aristocracy uh, limit the power of Little John, uh, they limit not because Little John want to be limited. They limited because they, 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 that was the first revolution, let's say, aristocratic revolution, but revolution which, which limits the power of the king. Yeah. So what's the forces? Uh, the, drive, uh, the pressure of the West is very important, uh, especially it's very important for um, countries who want to be together with the West, who are uh, I mean, assessing themselves as part of, part of Western civilization. But it is the only force which can come from the top to the bottom. Uh, there is no other, no other uh, forces like that. So... Uh, uh, ruler's will is nothing. And uh, uh, so what can drive the grassroots development of institutions? And 
on the more private interest. Uh, and more private interest create demand and pressure for efficient institutions, and nothing else, I mean. You cannot be granted for good money or for uh, a good policy or for good uh, judiciary or for whatever, uh, because you have a good master. You need to demand that. And to demand that, you need to have a, uh, have a freedom to demand that. And uh, uh, also institutional reforms based on more private interests are shared and more sustainable. <coughs> and if you look to, repeat, uh, I want to repeat, if you look to what happens in uh, Western Europe, uh, in uh, United States, all the institutions here were emerged in the same environment with small government, with less intervention, with people making decisions about themselves. So privatization should take uh, more, and it should be privatization beyond classic, classical privatization, meaning not only selling the industrial enterprises, state-owned industrial enterprises, but it's much deeper. Can develop, developing post-Soviet or any other societies build efficient public services? Or services which are assessed in West to be public, like Canadian healthcare, which is public service, or British healthcare, which is public service. Maybe, but they can do that only if the if whole society will be concentrated on that single issue. But there is many other issues which they need to be concentrated. We want to build in dead countries, to build efficient judiciary, to build good army, to build transparent police, to build to build good healthcare, to build good education, to build la 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 la, etc. etc. And and but we have only two eyes, and we cannot watch all of these things. And so we should select what the most important and where the private sector involvement can uh, cannot be big. Yeah, and uh, focus on that sectors, that services, and allow private sector to do other things. Uh, another idea, we can import the institutions. Uh, I th uh, there is, um, my, 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 my junior colleagues in university, they make an, a research with me about the, uh, the different currencies. And if you um, put some very mild requirements to quality of the currency, you can find that, um, uh, that uh, there is only seven currencies in the world which uh, should be paid attention. U U.S. dollar, uh, Japanese yen, Swiss franc, Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, uh, New Zealand dollar, and British pound, and euro. All others are either have no history or they, or they are crap, yeah? So, um, so if you cannot, and, and that means that the, most of the nations cannot build uh, the successful institutions named Central Bank. So just import it, uh, dollarize economy, euroize, whatever, and uh, that, that can help if you are not, not uh, so strong to allow uh, private money. So. How to make people more responsible, and that means people making more decisions about themselves, about their elections, about whatever, the small government. So that's the only thing which can be doable uh, as uh, economic reform and having long-term consequences as uh, democracy. So private ownership on everything, 
So first I have here that on the land, on that, that, and so no, on all everything, because there is nothing which cannot be owned privately. Private education, healthcare, and other services which are referred to be public, and liberalized markets for goods, services, and labor. And if you, if I omit something, please put here. And uh, so that means that the the the, uh, the, the new consensus. Uh, how countries should proceed to continue their growth as market democracies and how to be, be become a normal country. They should do more stabilization. It means that they should have more strict fiscal policies and more um, uh, and, bet, and better better monetary policies. They should liberalize as much as possible, and um, that's the most important. They should privatize the society, not privatize the enterprises. They should allow private interests to be driving force for decision-making. They should, either if you, if, we are, if you are spending uh, public funding, there is several ways how to spend public funding. In one case, this decision is made by bureaucrat, in other decision is made by, uh, by, by citizen. Uh, you can have public-funded schools, but you can fund them as institutions or you can fund them uh, accepting school choice through some type of voucher. And funding through, when, when you allow citizens to make their decisions, make them stronger, believer in freedom and supporting the development of country and demanding democracy. I think that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the other way of, of uh, building democracy is only, I mean, concurring that countries, which looks to be uh, not this discussion about economics. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kaha. When Kaha became uh, Minister of Economics, he said, uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that he will privatize everything except for Georgia's conscience. Was, was, is that correct? Correct. <laughs> All right. Well, from, uh, from your lips to God's ears, as they say. Our last speaker is uh, Oleg Havrilishin. Um, Oleg completed his uh, Bachelor of Arts degree from Queen's University and his PhD in economics from uh, MIT and is currently a visiting scholar for the Center f in the Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Toronto. Since the late 1980s, he has focused on uh, post-communist transition, both in uh, policy positions and doing analytical research. He served as acting deputy minister of finance in the first independent government of Ukraine, then became Ukraine's representative as, uh, and, uh, on the board of the IMF. He has been a senior staff member of the IMF since 1996, most recently as the deputy director in the European Department responsible for operations in countries in the former Soviet Union. He has written and edited many articles and books. His most recent book include, uh, books include Divergent Parts in uh, Post-Communist Transformation, Capitalism for All or Capitalism for the Few, which he published in 2006, and then a Return to Growth in CIS Countries, Monetary Policy and Macroeconomic Framework, which he also which he co-wrote co in uh, 2006. Please help me welcome Oleg Havrilishin.
Thank you very much, uh, Marianne. Thank you for the uh, pleasant introductory remarks and for the invitation. It's wonderful to be uh, back at the Cato Institute uh, again after a couple of years uh, when I was here. And, of course, it's particularly nice to be here with uh, colleagues and friends uh, on this uh, most important uh, celebratory uh, occasion of 20 years of the fall of communism, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, it's nice to hear these uh, bios about you being read and you uh, uh, don't necessarily recognize yourself, but it's very complimentary. Uh, it, it, there's there's, a, there's a, an incident of a bio about me being uh, stated that uh, I assure you is not true, but uh, uh, I'm glad it uh, didn't uh, leak out of the IMF to here. Uh, when I first, uh, I, I was born in Ukraine and uh, family uh, fled communism and we emigrated to uh, the West various places. So I grew up in Canada and worked in the U.S. and Canada. And when I uh, came from Ukraine after serving as in the uh, government at Independence and became a member of the board of the IMF representing Ukraine, I was told that at the first opportunity when I was giving a presentation at the board, some IMF economists sitting uh, at the back rows, staff members, were listening, and uh, one of them said to the other, gee, this uh, new guy from Ukraine, he sure speaks good English. I bet he was in the KGB. LAUGHTER uh, all right. Uh, my colleagues that have preceded me have said uh, many of the things that I would uh, have said in summing up of the last 20 years. And uh, in a, in a uh, fairly uh, complete sense, I would uh, agree with what Anders has said, what uh, Kaha ben has said, and uh, Andrei Larionov earlier. Might be some small differences. Whether they're important or not will be for you to uh, look at. I want to focus my remarks on answering the critics of rapid reform. And I will talk about something that, uh, despite uh, President Klaus's admonition to not talk about uh, Big Bang and uh, uh, gradualism debates, I will talk about it. Why? Because I think his more important message is that there is an attack on capitalism and markets, and I think one of the best ways of defending it is to find the answers to those who criticize it. And the critics of the way reform was done in post-communist area uh, I think are, uh, uh, do need to be addressed and answer given to them. Well, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words, so let me start with a statement of where we have come. Uh, Anders, I, I don't think this substitutes for your 20 pages, but it, uh, I think, is in the same spirit. We've arrived. Turning to the issue of what criticisms have been made of, uh, uh, of the rapid reform liberalization process, I address four. There are others, perhaps, but I think these are the four most important ones. One criticism is that the Big Bang or rapid reforms and liberalization caused not only the largest output fall since the Great Depression, but also big social pain. Uh, second is that rapid privatization created oligarchs who then opposed the full liberalization, distorted the market. By this is meant privatization in a narrower sense of perhaps uh, denationalization is the more precise word, but it's an awfully awkward one, so people uh, use privatization. 
third, rapid liberalization impeded development of good institutions. Uh, this was raised uh, by an earlier question, which uh, uh, wasn't fully answered from uh, somebody in the audience. Uh, I'll try to uh, address that. And fourth, that rapid globalization of the post-communist countries increased their vulnerability to the current global crisis. <clears throat> GDP falls largest since the Great Depression. Well, that depends which country you're talking about. It was large in some, but not so large in others. And secondly, if you look at official statistics, you're making mistakes because it's under Osland in particular has nicely worked out a few years back. The official statistics overstate the amount of decline for two main reasons. They ignore the fact that you're eliminating negative value-added items. And besides... Official statistics say what happened since 1989. Well, surely what happened between 89 and about 91, 92 cannot be attributed to capitalism or markets or reforms. This was the inertia of the failing socialist system. So when you take these into account, so the falls are not nearly so big. So big. I'm reminded of what I hear constantly on television these days about the greatest recession since 1930s. Uh, so far, it hasn't been. Now, it may still be, but so far there have been a couple in the last 50 years that are at least as big as this one. Oh, but it's a lovely thing to refer to since the, the uh, Great Depression. It's not quite correct. Uh, most important, the critics who make these points focus on the worst cases, and especially in the CIS, and they ignore completely that the Central European and Baltic countries had a very small recession and a very early recovery as early as 92, 93, certainly 94, 95. <clears throat> and finally, analytically, and as an answer to critics uh, uh, <clears throat> of markets and capitalism, I think I would emphasize point four, it has been demonstrated, and I won't go through it here. I didn't bring a copy of uh, my book. I'm not as good at marketing. Uh, uh, in that book, I have that, uh, Marianne mentioned, I have uh, tried to show that the decline was not caused by too much liberalization, but too little liberalization too late. Uh, big bang caused social pain. Well, okay, yeah, maybe the depression, the uh, recession wasn't so big, but there was a lot of social pain. Yes, there was. There was social pain everywhere. And for all, as President Klaus mentioned, there, it was costly. There was unemployment. There was less output. There was uh, less income. There was a widening of income distribution and uh, some poverty increases and so on. But, again, it's important to emphasize, which the critics do not do and ignore when they're shown this, that the decline was much shorter and the pain was much less in rapid reformers than in slow reformers. And this is best captured by a statistic that comes from an institution that would hardly be a big friend of the Washington Consensus, namely the UNDP and its Human Development Index. Uh, I hope you can see a little bit of it, uh, but at least enough to get the trend. The Human Development Index, which is a sort of measure of overall well-being, social well-being, uh, for different country groups, fairly similar to what Anders talked about earlier. Notice the top line, the blue one. That's Central Europe. There was virtually 
nothing to in the way of a decline of uh, well-being in Central Europe, even from 90 to 95. And then it trundled along on its path. The Baltics suffered something between 90 and 95, fairly deeply, but then very quickly recovered and caught up to Central Europe. Where the human pain was the greatest was in the slower reformers. The CIS countries uh, of the reforming group and the CIS countries of the non-reforming group. Those are the ones in the bottom. The yellow in the middle is Southeast Europe, uh, as a general comment. Let me turn to uh, criticism number two, that rapid privatization, by which I mean here, or the critics talk about denationalization, created the oligarchy, non-competitive markets, incomplete liberalization. Now, I think that the critics do have a point in this uh, criticism about the consequences of uh, a creation of a so-called oligarch group, a term which uh, I don't think I need to define, uh, uh, a term which I believe was invented by Russian journalists, uh, namely the few very rich that have a tremendous amount of not only economic and other power, uh, the six most successful rent seekers, uh, if you will, and uh, I, I don't think it's uh, wrong for critics to point out that such all economic oligarchies are not good for the sorts of aims that the Cato Institute stands behind so much for open competition, entrepreneurship, small and medium enterprise activity. But here again, the critics most often have things turned around and are standing on the head. Because it was not privatization or denationalization speed that created the oligarchs. It was rather the non-transparency and the use of insider deals to do it. Uh, the major logical fault of critics uh, in, in this regard, as well as on the decline and pain, is that sometimes there's really uh, too much emphasis on the Russia case ignoring the larger sample. Uh, if you look at the rest of the transition economies, you have a scatter of uh, slow privatizing, succeeding, slow privatizing, not succeeding, and so forth. Uh, rapid privatization worked extremely well, thank you, transparently, without the creation of these kind of oligarchy groups in much of Central Europe and the Baltics, whether it's Hungary, Estonia, the Czech Republic, the trans, uh, not without bumps, of course, but certainly not comparable to uh, the problem of uh, creating these uh, groups in, uh, in Russia and uh, Ukraine. Note, and I think this is the most important counterexample to the critics about the way this is done, the case of Ukraine. Ukraine went slowly. Did it get a different result in terms of the creation of these concentration of wealth in a few hands? No. They have exactly the same oligarchy problems as, as Russia. Uh, now, on, on this particular aspect, I may differ a little bit from uh, uh, Anders and uh, possibly Andre, uh, but I think it's of importance to make a small distinction between creating capitalism and markets in a broad sense and asking the question whether those markets are the kinds of markets we want to see. To the extent that they are not fully open and competitive markets, then uh, this is an incomplete form of movement towards capitalism in the market. Is this relevant or not? 
Well, it's too early to tell whether the cases of the Ukraines and, uh, and, and Russia will uh, lead to uh, different results. But it has somewhat of a connection to the point raised by Andrei Ilarionov earlier uh, that economic reforms have progressed a lot, but not democratic reforms. If you slice up the groups a little bit, uh, there seems to be a reasonably strong correlation between the countries where you see some problematic creation of these so-called oligarchic uh, formations and the failures of democratization. It's not a perfect correlation, but no correlations are perfect. A at a minimum, I would say that while I agree with uh, Anders' very nice statement that uh, democracy is the uh, best weapon against rent-seeking, I think we need to do the cause and effect circle analysis more fully and ask also about the problem that rent-seeking is the worst enemy of democracy. And this addresses a lot of the issues uh, that Kaha also raised about how is it that we do things. Well, it's nice as economists, as we've always done for decades, that we can sit and, uh, and, and make a list of the policies of what is the right thing to do. And we're generally right, of course, because uh, uh, economists are better paid than uh, political scientists than any university. Uh, so the test of the market proves we're right. Uh, the problem is that the ears which we are addressing with these recommendations may not find it in their interest to follow those recommendations. I will return to that issue when I talk about institutions. There's also a strong criticism about liberalizing too quickly before good institutions were put in place. I uh, am fully in, uh, in line with the uh, uh, views of uh, President Klaus stated today that it would have been a disaster if you tried to put in place institutions first. Uh, but look, actually, the history of what actually happened, as opposed to what is the right thing to happen, is phenomenally interesting. It is true that institutions lagged behind market liberalization, but this was true for all reformers, fast or slow. Worse, those who were slow at doing the basic liberalization, markets, prices, international trade, and so forth, basically the politicians and leaders abused the institutional argument about building good institutions first. They moved slowly on stabilization, liberalization institutions, for their own personal interests. Uh, the delay in economic reform allowed personal rent-seeking interests to, uh, to blossom. Look at some of the numbers. Uh, in, uh, this is available on the website eventually, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it is clear if you look at the measures taken from the EBRD about liberalization as such, as opposed to institution building, there are some technical details, but it doesn't matter how you cut the pie, it comes out the same. It's clear that everybody did institutions more slowly. Uh, but once the slow liberalizers started to liberalize and achieve market economies, uh, CIS uh, moderate reformers, CIS limited reformers is the grouping here. 
once they started to move forward to higher levels of liberalization, note they did very little about institution building while the early liberalizers took off. There was a comment or question earlier this morning about institutions uh, reform having slowed down. Well, my first answer to that would have been, uh, remember uh, Oslin's chart about the measures of progress and transition of market liberalization. Simple mathematical fact. It happens to be an asymptotic curve. If you move fast at the beginning, you naturally cannot move as fast in the middle at the end. So you have to be careful how you measure the speed of uh, liberalization in Central Europe. Uh, because it's a natural thing that that's going to happen. Second point is that if you look closely, you will see that those who have been moving fastest on institutions uh, are those who started early on stabilization and liberalization. Uh, Those who pretended that they were waiting for the market to be built, institutions to be built before they liberalized, were really just pretending and putting forth a case Uh, I'm reminded of how frequently in Ukraine I heard those who worried about moving too quickly on reform saying, the people are not ready for the market. Baloney. It is the speaker who is not ready for the market for personal financial reasons. They want to have more time to switch from being part of the communist elite to being part of the future capitalist elite. Uh, and therefore institutions are not going to be built in advance, and they haven't been. There's not one single case among transition countries where institutions were built in advance of liberalization. Not one single case, despite all of the arguments in favor. Finally, just a few quick words on uh, the globalization uh, uh, or increasing the risk of crisis and how the current global crisis has hit the uh, uh, transition countries. Well, uh, this is a, it's true that the hardest hit of all of the regions of the world is proportionately the transition region uh, because this is a two-edged socialist legacy. When you want to get out of socialism, you move quickly. Success in transition creates a boom. It creates global openness. It creates high growth which, of course, is a risky game, but no pain, no gain. Uh, When the uh, vulnerability, uh, when the risk came along, then there were more transition countries than non-transition countries that fell into difficulties. However, and uh, Anders has pointed this out, the external crisis hit many, but by no means all post-communist economies. So it isn't automatic that because you're post-communist. The final, the most important conclusion to draw from this is that what happened in the current global crisis is completely unrelated to the degree of market transformation. We have Hungary on one end, Ukraine on the opposite end of the degree of market transformation. Or we can say uh, to coin a phrase that each post-communist economy is unhappy or happy in its own way. Everybody has their individual problems. Some have fiscal excess, some external imbalance, some have currency mismatch. I'm going to skip this. Basically, what the current global crisis is saying, goodbye, Lenin. Hello, Schumpeter. Uh, Welcome to a market economy where lenders, international lenders, like to lend to successful performers, which the PCEs, many of them, wear, until they don't. But that's true for all market economies. So, in fact, the fact that they were hit by crisis is almost 
and I, 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 I'm not, I, I stretch this perhaps a bit, but it is almost by itself a sign of success in transition. Okay, uh, do I have a few more minutes? One minute? Okay. Lessons learned. Speed is very important, I agree with other speakers, for liberalization of market operation and for allowing small enterprise, in other words, for private sector development. Speed on large privatization is good and is fine also, but if it is transparent and open to all. Uh, I don't want to say the devil is in the details, but a small cautionary note. It should be as transparent as possible. Institutions must follow quickly, but they need not precede liberalization. Beware of arguments that people are not ready for markets and that good institutions must be built up first. These are usually false arguments of self-interest. And also, lesson learned, beware of reform criticisms, and many of the reform criticisms do, do have this problem, that point to large, important, but not necessarily representative cases. It's right to do a lot of study of Russia. It is big. It is important. It is arguably the most important of, of the countries. But that doesn't make it representative. You have to, if you draw conclusions about transition, looks at other. Uh, that's it. All right. Thank you. If I could just ask the speakers to come to the front. We are now going to move very quickly or immediately into a Q&A uh, session for the next 20 minutes. Uh, we'll be uh, breaking up at uh, quarter past one, at which point uh, lunch will be served upstairs. Uh, like the previous, moder previous moderator, I'm also going to abuse my uh, immense position of power here and ask uh, the first question about the causes of the current um, economic problems. Um, uh, Andres, from, from, your, from your speech, it seemed to me that what you were saying is that the float is the way to go. Caja, on the other hand, uh, emphasizes uh, dollarization and presumably also uh, he would be happy with a currency board as well. Um, I can certainly see that the float countries, such as Czech Republic and Poland, have not suffered as much as uh, countries with fixed exchange rates and, and, uh, in the Baltics and, and Slovakia, which has, uh, which has now transitioned to the euro. Um, but could we just uh, explore the exchange rate uh, question here or exchange rate mechanisms? And then uh, one quick question to Kaja. Um, I, I realize your position is uh, to, to privatize as much as possible, as quickly as possible, but bearing in mind that privatization is thrown out there as the big shortcoming of, of transition, in other words, that a lot of corruption was involved, what have you learned, you as, in as being in charge of the uh, privatization and reform in, in Georgia, what have you learned uh, of the, uh, fr from the last 20 years of research uh, that enabled you to... Um, conduct privatization in Georgia in a different way. Thank you. Yeah, if I may start, uh, uh, yes, it sounded very much as I thought that float was the way forward, but not quite. I, uh, we, if you look up on the post-communist countries, uh, or the East European countries in this case, Poland and the Czech Republic have done well. They are floaters. They are inflation targeters. They have focused on keeping inflation uh, low. 
they are doing well. But there are also two other countries that are doing pretty well, Slovenia and uh, uh, Slovakia, and, might surprise you, Kosovo. Uh, and all these have a euro. Uh, Kosovo and Montenegro have euronized uh, unilaterally, which was not open for the Baltic countries. So I think that the euro is really the way forward to the small countries in the, in the regions that are members of the European Union and that the European Central Bank has acted pretty responsibly. It has not acted as if it's part of this crisis. It has not provided swap credits, and it uh, should have let in Lithuania in 2006, and then uh, much of this crisis uh, uh, would uh, not happen. So if you are a small uh, country in Eastern Europe, you should uh, get the euro as fast as possible, and the European Central Bank should see it as its duty to facilitate that process. Thank you. Thank you, um, the, the, the important lesson from privatization is that uh, you should privatize, actually. Uh, but I think that the, the biggest, uh, biggest uh, positive thing that you can do, can, can do that, uh, create a coalition uh, uh, in, in society, in government, which is interested in privatization incomes. And um, so that means that no beauty contest selling for highest uh, cash offer, and uh, that creates much more transparency of privatization than uh, than um, any other and any other uh, technique. Uh, that's why. Second is that uh, it's uh, there is big gain, and there is no no gain without pain, as it was mentioned once more today. And uh, if you don't privatize, you'll have huge problems. So it's much better to swallow that critics and swallow that pain and privatize than not to privatize. So it's, um, it's, 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 you don't have an option, you see? I mean, um, I don't like to privatize now. I want to privatize later when uh, it will be transparent. You should privatize when it can be done. All right. Let's open it up. Yes. First question here. Thank you. I'm John Utley with the American Conservative Magazine. Uh, you, you all don't talk so far about the political structures you have in the countries, and uh, there's very little discussion. Some of us argue, beginning with Hernando de Soto, that proportional representation uh, has a system where there's no accountability. Accountability is a word that does not exist in many languages, in fact. Uh, that if you have a system that where uh, smaller countries can handle proportional representation, that means lists, party lists, where the party leaders decide who gets in the Congress. But large countries, it's a disaster, and that's why they can't reform. In other words, can you address the, some way of the political structures in these countries which will allow uh, accountability and reform uh, to, go, to progress as we'd like to see? Yeah, I've uh, discussed this in uh, several of my books, in particular, how uh, capitalism was built. What we are seeing is uh, two clear trends that uh, uh, countries are going from uh, uh, mixed presidential and parliamentary system to purely parliamentary system where democracy prevails, and the opposite, uh, more presidential systems where uh, authoritarianism prevails. Uh, similarly, we are seeing a general strong trend 
towards uh, uh, represent, uh, uh, proportional representation. And you can say that this is uh, in either uh, case. And uh, a simple reason is that it's far too easy to buy a seat if you have uh, a single mandate uh, seats. I can take particular Ukraine, which has had a very interesting um, uh, development in this regard. It started with new parties and uh, single uh, mandatory uh, mandate uh, constituencies, and it has now moved fully to proportional representation. And uh, uh, when they did uh, so, the price of a seat increased from half a million dollars approximately to five to ten million dollars. So it costs much more to buy a seat on a party list. And now all the uh, parties that are in Parliament are committed to have open lists, as it's called, the German or Finnish system, where you vote both for a person and uh, uh, for a party, so that you have a, a combination of personal responsibility and uh, uh, party responsibility, because uh, corruption in Parliament is one of the big problems. And uh, my guess is that a parliamentary ele uh, uh, election in Ukraine costs about $500 million, which is um, about the same as a U.S. Uh, uh, House of Representatives election. So, of course, you can say that Ukrainians value their democracy much more because the Ukrainian GDP is only one hundredth of the U.S. Uh, uh, GDP, but I would rather prefer another interpretation of this uh, data. So, uh, but, uh, I would rather argue that you need a proportional party uh, representation with um, a threshold. The worst case here was Poland in '92. Uh, they had 28 parties entering the parliament in the proportional elections because they had no threshold whatsoever. Nobody's going to repeat that. And the worry now is that some countries are going for very high thresholds, as Russia notably has introduced a threshold of 7%. Ukraine has a 3%. Most uh, Central and East European countries have uh, 4 to 5% uh, threshold. So my sense is that it's moving towards the German parliamentary system uh, with regard to the uh, – but with a single chamber. Thank you. Uh, let's take one question in the back. Hi, it's Mark Snowis from The Voice of America. Um, it's primarily for Mr. Aslan, but any of you. My sense from the previous panel um, was that there was a difference between um, economic liberalization and democratic consolidation, let's say. And um, Mr. Aslan in particular was talking about how the two are positively correlated, and I was wondering if any of you really saw that as a, as a difference in viewpoint from what the previous panel was saying, or um, am I missing something? Thank you. Sorry, I was late, so I didn't uh, quite catch that. I know that Andre and I have uh, very similar views. Uh, uh, what I talked about here primarily was the early part of uh, a transition. There you have a very strong positive correlation. If you move later, you have particularly the case of Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan undertook late 
very substantial market reforms. So Kazakhstan is the Pinochet model, the Lee Kuan Yew model in uh, the former Soviet Union and uh, has had very high uh, growth rate. They have undertaken lots of reforms as a Chilean uh, pension uh, reform, uh, complete liberalization of uh, a a, a labor market, excellent banking reforms, good uh, stock market reforms, uh, uh, etc. And it remains highly authoritarian. But this is a case of what uh, uh, Oleg talked about here at the end, people who waited until they could make sure that they could become the best capitalists as they had been the best communists in the the old system. That's uh, how you can look upon uh, Kazakhstan. But by and large, Kazakhstan (laughs) is an outlier. Uh, You have uh, one specific thing, and it is uh, labor market regulation. Labor markets are more liberal, uh, that is, uh, freer, in uh, more authoritarian countries. Uh, by and large, which might not uh, surprise you. So uh, uh, here you have uh, EU regulation of the labor markets in Central Europe that have clearly aggravated the situation. You can say that in some regards uh, to other regulation, for example, environmental uh, regulation. So the EU influence and the European model has uh, stifled growth, I would argue, since about 2000 in uh, Central and Eastern Europe at the time when uh, the former Soviet uh, countries have really taken off. It's slightly mixed, but uh, on the whole, a clear picture. Yes, if if I may uh, uh, add uh, to that, uh, I agree with what uh, Andre said earlier, that uh, when you look at the big picture, that... uh, uh, the the really important distinction between countries is the achievement or a lesser or non-achievement of democracy. But I'm pretty sure I uh, heard Andre saying that, of course, amongst the 25-odd transition countries, the degree of market reform does vary. He just didn't get into that and uh, and 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 thought that the democracy thing was uh, was what he wanted to focus on and what should one should focus on. If you do get into the details of uh, the quality of market reform or degree of market reform, and my little chart making a distinction between liberalization elements and institutional elements gets into those details, you find a tendency that reaffirms and strengthens the positive relationship between market reforms and uh, democracy. Those with much more advanced, high-quality market reforms, including institutional development, are the more democratic countries of Central Europe, Baltics. Those that have fallen behind in that aspect of market reforms are the ones that have moved towards uh, a more authoritarian uh, sort of state. Another dimension of the quality of reforms that I'd like to mention here uh, is you know related to this business of concentration of in uh, in a small number of capitalist hands of a lot of the action. Yes, most of those countries have uh, achieved a share of private sector and GDP that's 60, 65 percent, not that far behind Central Europe. But if you look at the share of GDP contributed by small medium enterprises. 
In Central Europe, it is now uh, something like 60-75% equivalent to what you see in Germany, Western Europe. And there's a lot of debate about the statistics, but in Russia, Ukraine, and elsewhere, the share of the small-medium sector in GDP is still far behind. What does that tell me? That tells me that that's a market that's not necessarily equally accessible to small entrepreneurs as it is to the big fish. That's, I think, one of the major shortcomings, and there's a strong positive correlation with the degree of democracy. If you want more, read my 2006 book on that. Hi, I'm Moses Weisberg from George Washington University. If one of the main motivations of opposing rapid rapid, uh, liberalization is to reposition yourself to benefit from the subsequent change, why is there so much academic attachment to that concept here? So, I don't think, can you repeat the last? Oh, sure. Basically, you know, if um, one of the major motivations for delaying rapid liberalization is to reposition yourself to benefit from those changes, what explains the prominence of uh, opposition to rapid uh, liberalization in America? Trotskyism. There are many Trotskyists in universities. I, have, I, I can add a different factor. Economists are extremely egoistic and arrogant. Uh, they have for a long time said in their discipline, and I was taught this at Queen's University as an undergraduate at MIT and uh, elsewhere later on in my career, that, you know, the job of the economist is to make an analysis and decide what is the best policy and then to tell the policymakers. That's fine. I agree with that, and that's the way I made my career in economics. Thank you very much. Uh, tenure and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the reality in the real world is that it's sometimes not as simple as that because unless the policymakers to whom you are giving this best mix of potential policies have any reason to move in that direction, you're not going to get anywhere. And if they have very strong reasons to not move in that direction, then you're talking to uh, deaf, deaf ears. I don't want to exaggerate the point. I mean, there is ways of creating subtle pressure and pushing things along, but it's a consideration that typically is not part of the intellectual makeup of the economics profession. Let me add with uh, uh, several uh, answers here. I think that the U.S. universities today are about the most left-wing in the world, so it would be very strange if it uh, were different. I think that this is a disgrace that should be sharply and publicly uh, exposed, and there are many causes uh, behind it. It's discussed, but uh, uh, far too little. A second... Does that apply to Canadian universities as well? <laughs> I, I'm not at home at a Canadian university, so I dare not, uh, uh, not uh, say. A uh, second reason is, of course, that they didn't know. Very few economists uh, actually go out on the ground and look yeah. upon what, uh, uh, what they uh, see. And uh, the most shocking example here is uh, five um, uh, aged Nobel Prize winners... Uh, uh, who in uh, the presidential campaign in Russia in uh, 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 the summer of uh, 96 
came out strongly in, with a manifesto in support of uh, communist leader uh, Gennady Zyuganov. So here you have an immediate uh, uh, example of what Kaka Bendukidze said, uh, that uh, these people are really communists. And uh, you have uh, the names of them in a couple of my books. <laughs> And uh, Good. a third point <laughs> is that you had, a, uh, at the beginning of a transition, you had a massive consensus of the main macroeconomists, I'm thinking Larry Summers, Stanley, Stanley Fisher, My, uh, Michael Bruno and others, uh, and you had also a, a, a big dominance uh, in, uh, uh, at that time in the World Bank and the IMF, and you also had uh, among the uh, leading reformers in the area. All these three lines were all in favor of radical economic reform. So how do you make a name in the, uh, in, uh, the profession? Well, uh, Oli touched upon it. You try to differ from the others. So you come, uh, uh, must come out and say something different. And then finally you have a special case of uh, Joe Stieglitz. It was uh, uh, late Rudy Dornbusch who used to say about uh, Stieglitz that uh, Stieglitz is, uh, the problem with Joe is that he's only interested in exceptions and not in the general rule. <laughs> if you are interested in, uh, um, in the subject a little more, you might want to have a look at the work by Peter Bauer. Mm. who has, uh, of course, learned his lessons in economics on the ground, uh, looking at uh, actual interactions between human beings, and who's warned a number of times against excessive empiricism in economics, especially one that is based on uh, unrealistic or unreal, if you will, assumptions. Well, that's the, uh, that's the last question we had the time for. Uh, thank you very much. Please join us upstairs for lunch. Thank you.